Part Four, Chapter One of Canada's One Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's One Hundred Days by John Livesay, Part Four, Chapter One. Battle Pieces, on September twenty-eight. Canadian Corps headquarters moved from Nouvelle Vitasse into what had been an enemy headquarters situated in the heart of the Drucourt-Caen line, half a mile east of Caen. The new camp is on rising ground and remains fairly dry even in wet weather, a pleasant change from our previous quarters. The enemy had here constructed elaborate dugouts thirty feet below the surface with commodious canvas-lined rooms, but for the most part the staff works and sleeps in tents grouped in and about a little wood, the whole camouflaged against air observation. The enemy persistently shells our railhead at Caen with a long-distance gun, whose shell at stated intervals goes whining over the camp. Trainloads of prisoners standing overnight in the yards, waiting to be moved to the base, protest at our inhumanity. Little damage is done, though one shell lands in the lines of the Corps garage. Several Canadian ambulances are located at Caen, but escape injury. There joins a Canadian Corps about this time, a young staff officer lent by the British Army, who at once makes himself very popular. This is His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. Some of us had apprehensions of an atmosphere of swank and embarrassment but these are speedily set at rest. He lives, like any other staff officer, in an Armstrong hut, and soon he is a familiar figure, chatting freely with both officers and men, and it is not long before GSO number 2 is regarded as a distinct acquisition to Corps. He brings with him a charm and vivacity of manner. One thought of his grandfather, King Edward, that sets us all at our ease, an unstudied courtesy and friendly interest that breaks down the most crusted reserve, with a keenness for his work that at times must be a source of anxiety to those responsible for his well-being, for he is never so happy as when rotting around the front line, and has a way of slipping off by himself and paying unexpected visits to battalion and company headquarters. It is after one of these, when his host was clearly overcome by the honor unexpectedly thrust upon him, that he remarks, He couldn't have been afraid of me. It must have been the name. So, through several weeks, he weaves his unconscious charm, and when he comes to leave us, it is with reluctance on his part and regret on ours. For not even the sternest Democrat among us, whether officer or man in the ranks, can long resist a winning personality whose frankness disarms, while his natural unassuming bearing wins confidence and even affection. It is a valuable experience on both sides. Citizens of a democratic country like Canada are accustomed to the aloof detachment and cultivated superiority of their great ones, in a word, to the snobbishness of wealth and power. And it is a delightful contrast to find in the heir to the throne a fine simplicity and the easy assumption of equality among soldiers and friends. This impression is so genuine, so spontaneous, that one hears his praises on every hand. Gentlemen, the Prince of Wales will dine with us tomorrow night, and I want you all to be in your places. 
This injunction of the mess president was not needed, and that evening will always be remembered by members of the friendly sea mess as a most delightful experience. Most of us might be described by the ungenerous as old fogies, but that night we refurbished our youth and gave the prince a good old-fashioned Canadian welcome. It is at Caen that news comes to the Canadian Corps of the armistice proposals. Enemy accepts unconditionally Wilson's terms, agrees to evacuate, and asks for an immediate armistice. I don't think we'll listen to that for a while. Everything is going fine, and the spirit of our men is splendid, comments an officer of the 5th CMR, first to enter Cambrai, where the news reached him. We must have an unconditional surrender, or in two months' time he will be ready to start at us again. And one of his men adds, We lads have been at it a long time, but we want to see it through even if we stay six months or a year. It is interesting to collect these views while the news is yet hot. He knows he's beaten. We'll have our own peace this winter, says a private from the Ottawa Valley. A Tommy from West Riding. When Jerry comes knocking at the door with his pride in his pocket, he must be in a pretty bad way. A cook of the 87th Battalion. We've got him going, and must keep pushing him along. If he had us where we had him, he wouldn't listen to soft soap peace offers. It's the Rhine for us. When we get there next year, he'll knuckle down. Another man of the same battalion, Grenadier Guards of Montreal, they'll know how to deal with him. Bullets are the only peace argument the Boche can understand. A sergeant, who was reputed to have charged the machine-gun nest at Blecourt with his bare fists. The Hun is bankrupt. We must make him liquidate to the last cent of his assets. Our widows and orphans demand it. That can be done only by the sword. The captain of an imperial heavy battery, working his guns from the slope of Bourlon Wood, is of the same opinion. I don't like it, he says. The enemy is short of men and material. He is crippled for lack of field guns, and his ammunition seems running low. He'll drag on peace negotiations for three months, and then go at us again. Indeed, this news excites more apprehension than hope. For the Canadian soldier, the cherished approach to Bourlon Wood must ever be from Etchnien-Artois, over the Canal du Nord, and then up winding slopes past Quarry Wood, crossing the Marquion line, and so through Bourlon town. This village, still beautiful, clings beneath the brow of the wood. The walls of the great chateau remain, and something of the handsome church tower. Its condition, better than its neighbors, offers a practical foundation for rebuilding. Seen against the dark mass of upclimbing wood, even the white flake of ruin adds a decorative touch to the charming picture of red roofs and gray stone. The town is very old. For centuries it has looked out over the vale to the western height crowned by the Bois de Bouche. On the very crest of the wood, where the road runs south to Agneau, lies a tank of the C2 class, the Salon, number 2724, flotsam of the first battle of Cambrai. One of her endless chains broken by a direct hit. She must have run off the roadbed, for she lies tilted at an extravagant angle over an enemy dugout. Another shell struck the roof. The Bosch have stripped her engines and all internal fittings. Nature has taken her to herself 
and in her mossy decrepitude she is part and parcel of the soil. For the revolving treads carry on their upper surfaces deposits of earth. On these little gardens have sprung up, the seed borne by birds and the wind. They resemble miniature kindergarten classes, for on this roof of steel now flourish grass and clover, bindweed and buttercup, daisies and ragged robin. Even through her broken tractor a little beech tree struggles. Good tank salon, you did not achieve that eminence, and there render your life until your task was done. For even as you floundered and stopped, there came the sharp yell of the infantry as they fell upon the Bosch gunners with bayonet and bomb. Within a stone's throw to the left, where the raised road gives protection, lies an enemy 5.9-inch battery position. Shells already fused stand in place, but the guns are on their way to the Canadian Corps captured gun park. A light railway turns up to the battery from Fontaine Notre Dame. Most of the dugouts are unfurnished and blind. The Bosch was packing in for the winter, even as we fell upon him. On the west end of the wood is a wonderful opip, built up into the trees, commanding a wide sweep of country in front of the Marquion line and the Canal du Nord. Nearby are two eight-inch guns, captured by Bing the previous November, but not removed and still lying there, rusted and impressive. The top of the wood, intact though it seems from a distance, is blasted. Only splintered trunks remain, and these too must die. The trees in this wood have been nurtured with blood, remarked a captured German officer. But on the southern and eastern slopes the ancient growth of oak and beech is unscathed, clothing the steep hillside. Blackberries are thick in the underbrush. A rabbit pops in and out. What a showplace for the British tourist, says our companion, a franc ahead to see the famous wood, and the graves. Let them here, amid their sandwiches and orange peel, pour out a libation to the heroes of England and of Canada who died upon these slopes. Standing on the crest of Burlow Wood, one surveys the battlefield, not alone of today, but of November 1917. From dawn until dark, in and around Burlow Wood, four British divisions here withstood overwhelming masses of the enemy, and so saved the army from disaster. For them, perhaps, weary and bleeding, it was sufficient that they had done their duty as became British soldiers. Modest, steadfast, and cheerful in adversity, his ingenuity constantly at work to belittle his own part in the show, the British soldier, whether of the old army or the new, is instinct in eminent degree with those qualities of mind and spirit that alone enable him to bear undaunted the brunt of battle, the anguish of the long years of trench warfare, and so his spirit unshaken win through to final victory. Such thoughts arise as one looks over the famous field and comes to a German military cemetery, where lies honorably buried many of these gallant British soldiers who fell in November 1917. Canada's share in this now common heritage of Burlow Wood has been recorded in the preceding pages. In no battle where her armies were engaged was there greater need for, no more successful application of those special qualities of personal initiative and resource, such as become second nature to men inured to the free life of the farm 
the mining camp, or the shanty, in a land where even the city dweller from his boyhood up is accustomed once a year to take down his rifle from its rack and disappear for a treasured interval into the silent fastnesses of the red deer or moose. For these, the long winter evenings glow with reminiscences of the chase, of toil, and hardy adventure. They exhibit proudly their trophies. They have now been engaged on a more bitter sport, and in the years to come, those of them who came through will carry a vivid picture of the dark outline of Burlow Wood, and will cherish the memory of their comrades who lie close and ordered in the Canadian cemetery behind Burgold Town at foot of the wooded slope. The sad news comes to the Corps at Caen one day that Major General L. J. Lipset, who had so brilliantly commanded the 3rd Canadian Division until after the close of the Battle of Arras the preceding month, had been killed by a sniper's bullet on October 14, while reconnoitering in the front line of his new command, the 4th British Division. At the outbreak of the war, General Lipset, who was an officer of the British Army, and had been lent to the Canadian militia, was stationed at Winnipeg, and proceeded immediately to recruit the 8th Battalion from the 90th Winnipeg Rifles, little black devils of the Real Rebellion fame, taking his unit overseas with the 1st Canadian Division. It was this battalion that, in April 1915, held the line in the Second Battle of Ypres in face of the enemy's first gas attack. General Lipset was successively promoted to command of the brigade and the 3rd Canadian Division, where his fine leadership, a courage that amounted to recklessness, his consideration for his officers and care for his men, soon endeared him to all ranks. The war, however, was clearly drawing to a close, and there could be no future for a professional soldier of his rank with the reduced Canadian militia and so he accepted the offer of the command of the 4th British Division, regretfully parting from his old comrades. But with ahead of him the fairly certain and speedy prospect of a corps command in the British Army. And now he is dead. The Canadian Corps buries him at Caen, where the civil cemetery has long overflowed its bounds to give shelter to friend and foe alike. It is a great and impressive gathering in the drizzling rain of an autumn afternoon. A hollow square of men from every branch of the Canadian Corps, and particularly from his beloved 3rd Division, encloses the open grave lying there in the heart of no man's land. All round about are solemn hills, their bare outlines pitted by shell holes and serrated by the white line of trenches, while across them stretch dark and forbidding belts of wire. Presently are heard the poignant strains of a funeral march, and the cortege approaches. His old battalion, the 8th, furnishes the firing party, the men marching with dragging feet and arms reversed. Behind walk with bowed heads the corps commander, the Prince of Wales, officers of the 4th British Division, and many of his tried comrades of the Canadian Corps. There is something strikingly impressive even barbaric, about the rites of a military funeral, and this is heightened by the time, the place, and the circumstance. But at length all is over, the funeral oration pronounced, the last volley fired, the last post sounded, 
a great soldier and a good citizen has been laid to his rest. It was the last we were to see of no man's land. Next day, Corps headquarters moved to Loire. End of Part 4 Chapter 1